In Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14, it says, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Today we've entered the weirdest courtroom drama in the Bible. Maybe. This is Day 14. Welcome to the Journey Through Daniel podcast, where every day we set aside space in our lives to experience God's Word. Together, we'll discuss the content and meaning of each passage and how the book of Daniel can help us understand more about who God is and the story He's writing for each of us every day. Welcome back to day 14 of the Journey Through Daniel podcast. I'm here once again with Brendan Lang. Hey. And a special guest, Brandon. Hello. Who is my brother. Not Brendan. And we have a Brendan and a Brandon today. So confusing, sorry. For two days. <laughs> just helping us navigate Daniel 7, which is known to be somewhat confusing. It's a hinge in the book of Daniel, and we're going to dive into that later. But I have a question to start us out. What's the biggest meal you've ever had in your life? Ooh, the biggest, biggest meal. meal, like the most you've eaten. Think back. I don't think this is the most I've ever eaten, but I think of like going to Fogo de Chao. That's a place you have to go and eat all you can, right? Yeah. So probably Fogo de Chao. I mean, it's up there because you spend a lot you for a the, lot of did steak. Did you have the meat sweats? I don't remember. I don't know that I've ever experienced the meat sweats, no. but it sounds awful. I don't think I have anything to add to that comment. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just uncomfortable. <laughs> I'm trying to think of my biggest meal. I think it was probably in India, actually. They do meals right out there. Like basically they keep bringing you food and you're like, oh, I'm full. And they're like, okay, cool. And then they just keep bringing it. So like when you tell them you're done, they just keep going. Yeah. And it's great. Yeah. It's really hard when you're raised from a culture that tells you to clean your plate before you can <laughs> leave the table. Yeah. And then it just never empties. It's I never think clean. Yeah. It's a recipe for disaster. Well, we've got some beasts. They're devouring things. Lots of devouring happening today. And to get into it, Brendan, why don't you take us through our commentary for today? Day 14. The Suffering and Enthronement of the Preeminent Image of God Today's reading continues Daniel's vision of the four beasts. The vision begins with beasts emerging out of chaotic waters, a scene reminiscent of biblical and Near Eastern creation stories, where creation begins in the context of watery, dark, and monstrous chaos. The vision now moves to a new scene where God, referred to as the Ancient of Days, is seated in a courtroom and is surrounded by his holy angels. In this courtroom, another figure appears who is described as one like a son of man. This figure ascends on the clouds to God and is given authority, glory, and sovereign power. This scene also picks up on creation themes. In Genesis 1, 26-28, creation culminated with the installation of humans as God's royal image bearers on the earth. Here, a human being, that's what the Aramaic phrase son of man means, is installed as king over the earth. In a sense, this vision depicts a new creation. But who is this Son of Man? The interpretation of the vision links the figure to the holy people of the Most High. Just as the four beasts represent four empires, so the Son of Man represents the faithful followers that the beasts had crushed. After a period of suffering under a beastly king, they experience a reversal. They are rescued and raised to positions of power like we've seen so often throughout the book of Daniel. However, when we look at the New Testament, it's clear that Jesus claimed this title as his own. Why did he make this connection? Since God's people continue to be burdened by the political, social, religious, and spiritual powers of this world, Jesus chose to stand in their place as a good king ought to do. As the Son of Man, he represented them, not as a literary symbol, but as a surrogate who let the beasts of this world, the principalities and powers, unleash their crushing blows on him. What appeared to be a victory for those powers was actually their undoing. 
After a period of suffering, Jesus was raised to new life, launching a new creation. When he ascended on the clouds to the Father, he was set on a throne of royal authority as the preeminent image of God. For day 14, we're reading Daniel chapter 7, verses 9 through 28. As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow. The hair on his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were opened. Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority, but were allowed to live for a period of time. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. I, Daniel, was troubled in spirit, and the visions that passed through my mind disturbed me. I approached one of those standing there and asked him the meaning of all this. So he told me and gave me the interpretation of these things. The four great beasts are four kings that will rise from the earth, but the holy people of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever. Yes, forever and ever. Then I wanted to know the meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from all the others and most terrifying, with its iron teeth and bronze claws, the beast that crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. I also wanted to know about the ten horns on its head and about the other horn that came up, before which three of them fell, the horn that looked more imposing than the others and that had eyes and a mouth that spoke boastfully. As I watched, this horn was waging war against the holy people and defeating them, until the Ancient of Days came and pronounced judgment in favor of the holy people of the Most High, and the time came when they possessed the kingdom. He gave this explanation. The fourth beast is a fourth kingdom that will appear on earth. It will be different from all the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth, trampling it down and crushing it. The ten horns are ten kings who will come from this kingdom. After them, another king will arise. Different from the earlier ones, he will subdue three kings. He will speak against the Most High and oppress his holy people and try to change the set times and the laws. The holy people will be delivered into his hands for a time, times and half a time. But the court will sit and his power will be taken away and completely destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of all the kingdoms under heaven will be handed over to the holy people of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all rulers will worship and obey him. This is the end of the matter. I, Daniel, was deeply troubled by my thoughts, and my face turned pale, but I kept the matter to myself. Brandon, do you want to take us through our discussion questions for Day 14? Day 14 Questions The vision of Daniel 7 anticipates the story of Jesus, but it also looks back to the story of Daniel in the lion's den in chapter 6. How does the experience of Daniel relate to the experience of the Son of Man in chapter 7? Question 2. When Jesus and the early Christian leaders spoke about the gospel, or good news, their message focused on the fact that Jesus had become king and his kingdom had come. Why is this good news? If this is the gospel message, how should we proclaim it in our world?
This really feels like we go from a Godzilla movie to a courtroom drama. It's like very strange. Wouldn't have been strange in the ancient world because it's a familiar scene. Kind of like what we talked about Enuma Elish, this Babylonian creation account. There are divine courtroom dramas that we can read about where we see figures who look a lot like the figures we read about here, especially in the religion to the north and in Ugarit where they worshipped the chief gods is a familiar god we all know, Baal or Baal, they called him Balu, who went in great combat against Yamu, a sea monster. We talked about the sea and how it's a force that represents evil. Anyway, we can read these myths about Balu and this courtroom in which this elderly figure presides whose name is El. He has white hair and things like that. So a lot of the imagery we see here is reminiscent of that. Balu, in fact, is described as a cloud rider oftentimes. And here we see someone who comes on the clouds to the father. And so the imagery is actually very familiar to what we see in ancient Near Eastern. At least to them. To them. I've never heard this before, but sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Balu just, and just the cloud go, rider. You can, yep. you can just Google it. and The great cloud rider in the sky. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, we got it. And you can see it in the Bible, too. It's not just like it's in ancient Near Eastern literature. It's in the book of Job. It's in 1 Kings 22, Psalm 82. There's all sorts of courtroom imagery, kind of like this. Well, my question is, what is a son of man? Because like, mm. this is Daniel. We are well before the New Testament, anything to do with Jesus. And I've yeah. heard Jesus referred to as son of man. But what is son of man here? Let me talk about the Old Testament backdrop to this, and I'd love it if Brandon jumps in and talks about how Jesus uses this. So, son of man, it's just a phrase that means human. We've actually talked about gentilics, which maybe you don't remember that word, but this idea that like to be a son of something, like a son of Israel, that means you're an Israelite. A son of man is a human. So we've talked last podcast about how this is built off of a lot of imagery we see in Genesis 1, this chaotic scene that the vision begins with, where there's dark waters and beasts in the water, and then we see this image of a son of man, a human who is given a seat of authority. Well, if you think about what happens at the culmination of the Genesis 1 account of creation, you have humans who are made in God's image who are given authority. They're given dominion. They're given the right to rule as his representatives on the earth. And so a lot of what we see here is actually picking up on themes in Genesis and talking about some figure who represents humans and has authority. Now, I think is interesting is we immediately connect the dots to Jesus. And of course, we like, do. We've read this <laughs> enough. We know who Jesus is. Well, he sounds like someone who's really kind of divine. It sounds like yeah. someone who's worshipped, who rules over everything. And it's impossible for us not to read it that way. It really is impossible for us to take off our lenses and read it from a different non-Jesus person. Does that make sense? Yeah. We've been taught that. But if you read the rest of the vision, I think it's interesting that this son of man is spoken of in very human-like terms with plural reference. And it's seems like the Son of Man is a symbol of a group of people who are suffered, who are mm. given the right to represent God. And so the vision is in a lot of ways, I think, something that's supposed to give hope, give encouragement to people who are going through suffering, just as we've seen in the first six chapters of the book of Daniel, that at the right time, at God's appointed time, he's going to intervene and restore the kingdom to them. Now, in the New Testament period, Jesus takes on this title for himself, and I'd love for Brandon to talk about that. And if there's anything you want to add or correct about what I said, feel free to jump. Oh, in. sure. Yeah. yeah. Nothing to correct. Absolutely. The son of man language would be one like a human being yeah. that comes in and scandalously is given power and authority mm. that seems to be sharing the throne, yeah. the judgment seat with the ancient of days. So of course, by the time of the first century, there's a lot of speculation about what this means, what this represents, who this person is with a variety of different interpretations, most of them centering on how this person is a representative 
representative of true Israel. Yeah. And, and that's ultimately what we mean by Messiah. The word Messiah or Christ in Greek, the same word, means someone who is given authority, not necessarily someone who is God or is divine. This is someone who has authority given by God. And for the Jewish people, they expected that person to be a representative of all that was true about Israel. I mean, there are other people who are called Messiah, right? right? It's exactly. not like this is like, it does have a specialized nuance, of course, at this time period. But in the Old Testament, we've talked about Cyrus. He was a Messiah. Right. Yeah. You're an anointed one. Yeah. And some branches of Judaism actually expected more than one Messiah. Yeah. One that would be more kingly and one would be more priestly, perhaps. And so for Jesus to pick up this phrase of the son of man, I think is curious for us. For us growing up, we always talked about Jesus as the son of God. That's not inappropriate to say yeah. that. But it is fascinating to me that Jesus himself, when he's trying to explain his identity to his followers, he talks about himself as the son of man. And I think it's to pick up these messianic themes mm -hmm. of a true representative of true Israel, the one that they were expecting would free them mm -hmm. from the oppression that they were experiencing in this moment. In Jesus's context, that was the Jewish temple system, the Jewish temple cult as equipped by the Roman Empire. So, you know, Jesus loves to hearken back to this passage, the son of man language. It comes from here. I have sort of an aside question that is sort of just like naming the elephant in the room. How is it that so many people use this chapter as a sort of like testament or prophecy to the end times or like the end of days or like a tribulation? How is it that it got associated with that or still continued to be used like that? So I think there is a confusion sometimes between apocalyptic language and apocalyptic story and that meaning the end of the world or what is often talked about by the prophets, the day of the Lord, right? Mm -hmm. And I actually love that, Brendan, you referred to Daniel 7 as a hinge chapter because I think that's true. History hinges on these types of moments mm -hmm. where it's not the same after as it was before. And that's the genre that apocalyptic literature that's the message it's trying to tell. Yesterday, we talked about how apocalyptic language assumes a God that reveals God's self through human history and never stops creating and recreating using the tools of just rich and dripping, cosmic, colorful imagery to say something that is more real than reality in order to give us an emotional reaction. Sometimes that's disgust, but by the end of it, it's usually always hope. And it's hope that God, who is always creating and always recreating, is just about to recreate history. And it hinges upon these decisive moments where God is deeply connected with the destiny of God's people. There's a lot of language in here that gets picked up and used. Mark 13, Jesus talks about how you'll see the Son of Man coming on the clouds. We talked about how the Romans at this point, they're kind of a beast. But really, the thing that gets him to the cross in Mark 14 is when he tells the high priest, right, that you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of the Father. And what he's doing is he's flipping the tables and saying, this is a courtroom drama, only I'm the judge, I'm that Son of Man, and you are the beast. Exactly. And that was totally unexpected for them. And of course, they're 
raising the car to blasphemy and saying, put this man to, right. to yeah. death. Because the high priest tears his clothes. Yeah. Because yeah. they're afraid. Because he's just called him the beast. Yeah. Essentially, that's what he's getting at. Well, in their place, their position, they have been led to believe is a place where they get to be the judges, right? And to have those tables literally be- and figuratively turned on them is probably an uncomfortable position for them to feel. Yeah, they thought they were on the other side of this courtroom drama in Daniel 7. What yeah. they realized is, no, they're actually the ones who are being judged. So why is it that Jesus loves Daniel 7 so much? Like we're reading it now in its context. It's Daniel's dream. It is during Belshazzar's reign. This is something that we've named as just the language of this book. We're moving into a whole section that is a hinged chapter where Daniel is having his own dreams and visions. Why is it that Jesus hearkens back to this so much in the New Testament? In a world without John 3.16, right? Because it hadn't been written yet. Passages like this, like Daniel 7, like Psalm 110, those were passages that spoke to the true hopes of the Jewish people. They gave encouragement that the way this world is working isn't how it's going to end up, that God is still going to be faithful. He's going to raise up someone who will sit on a throne of authority and execute justice on behalf of his people. And I think this is how Jesus came to understand his vocation. He understood that his role as this Messiah King, because that's who he is, that's what he's doing, the way he's going to rescue and raise people, because that's what we see throughout the whole book of Daniel is that people are rescued and then raised to positions of authority. The way he's going to do it is by going through that experience himself, you might say. He's going to be thrown to the beasts. He's going to take the hits just like Daniel did, just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did, just like people in the second century under the oppressive rule of Epiphanies did, where they were martyred for staying loyal to God. Jesus said, I'm going to do that. And it says a lot about who God is, says a lot about who Jesus is, that the way he's going to be enthroned and be installed as king next to the father is by going through suffering. Because Mm -hmm. he goes through that suffering, he takes the hits, and then he's raised. And quite literally, he comes on the clouds to the father. He ascends. And I think that's something that oftentimes gets missed. Like, we don't talk about the ascension and the significance of that, but in New Testament theology, it's picking up on what's going on here. It's the enthronement of Jesus. Jesus has picked up that vocation of Mm -hmm. a prophet. And what do prophets do? They use often coded language Mm -hmm. to speak truth to power and often enact things through weird acts. In some of the Old Testament, it's just akin to just really horrifying (laughs) art installation pieces using dung and etc. Jesus goes into the temple and by clearing it, disturbs the systems that are in place and used for oppression rather than for salvation, right? Well, and it's interesting because you see other examples in history well after this. You know, it's surprising the Catholic Church got to the point where, you know, they're selling indulgences Mm -hmm. and then Martin Luther called them out on that. You know, there are different points throughout church history where this type of thing happens and Jesus is the example of it. I think Jesus does something that's super interesting in light of what we've been talking about too. You know, the Hebrew boys and Daniel have had many, (laughs) many examples of, listen, even if my God does not save me, I will still do this faithfully because I know that he is the one true king and he is more powerful than empire. He is the one who gives power. And Jesus says the same thing. Even if God does not rescue me, I know that he is the one true power in this world. And what really happens is that he dies. Mm -hmm. And that's the ultimate act because God is trying to show that even death is something that he has power over. Even death is something that cannot stop him from granting and taking away power. 
It says a lot about the character of God, that this is how he works. It should teach us about how we should operate as Christians. If we're going to claim to live in this kingdom, this eternal kingdom that he promises, we should be willing to maybe take the hits more often and not pursue power in the ways that the world pursues power. And this is the upside down kingdom, honestly. This is the image of what Jesus is talking about in the Gospels when he teaches the kingdom comes about through acts of service, through acts of suffering. He understood leading up to the cross, this was his vocation. He was going to be the son of man who would die on behalf of the people. But then you will one day see the son of man coming in the clouds of heaven. And that's how you will know that the son of man was vindicated. Jesus is vindicated. When you see God acting in history in this way, you know that the God revealed in Jesus is the true God. Another good thing about apocalyptic language generally, and Daniel 7 specifically, the talk about the son of man is because it is just like this visual language. It lends itself very well to protest. Mm. So it's a coded protest that the emperor in Rome is not going to understand. This is their language, not his language. He doesn't get to know that. And so speaking truth to power, that protest, yes, that submission and surrender to God's way of doing things, but also the protest of saying to power, no, this is actually who Hmm. gives you that power. I think apocalyptic language was important for Jesus and Jesus's first followers to be able to give that narrative. And you certainly see that in, you mentioned Mark, but also Revelation and later on. I mean, it also speaks to us today. Like 2020, if not a hinge year, there's a lot hinging on this year. And again, we're recording this well before the election. You can apply it to that. There's racial injustice that, you know, we are confronting as a country. There's climate change we're confronting as a country. There's a lot of policies that are tied to politics that are not really political, but are politicized. There's so many different things that we're confronting in 2020, including the pandemic, that it really does feel like, you know, if you're going to talk about tribulation as it is like going through trials, Mm -hmm. this does feel like that. But, you know, there is like some hope in the idea that it is actually just an apocalypse. Maybe this is just the year that our eyes are open to finally see our reality in a more God-centered and God-focused way. I mean, so you asked like why people relate this to the end times. It's because of oh. stuff like this, you know, the coming on the clouds and, you know, we associate that with the second coming. I actually think Jesus is associating with his ascension and enthronement, but there is end type of language in these. And I don't want to get away sure. from that. I mean, I'm looking at our very next day's reading. It says that God's appointed time. <laughs> yeah. It suggests that there is an end. In fact, I think the word end is used, but it's not necessarily the end times. You know, it's that there are ends. There are decisive moments in history where God intervenes and, and acts on behalf of his people. And I don't want to make too much of 2020 like we hindsight is 2020 well hindsight is 2020 right but this could be like one of those climactic moments i don't know it's not like scripture is being written before our eyes and we know how to interpret this but at the very least whether god is doing something in the world or this is just something that's happening this is still an apocalyptic type of moment in which we're invited to look at the world and we have so much time you know i'm talking to brandon he's traveling the country right now right like when do you have time to do some of these things that you would never do when would you spend eight hours at home during the typical workday working alongside your kids? When would you have times like this to reflect and speak with family and think about what's going on in the world in ways that you never would have because you're so busy before? And so it really is kind of an apocalyptic moment where maybe God could be using these circumstances to teach us lessons about us and the
the world and the empires that dominate it. Well, and I think that it goes back to what we've hit basically every day so far of reading Daniel is like God ultimately gives power. He can ultimately take it away. And he's the only one who will sustain time of having power and not be corrupted. Right. And so this is a time where we can think and hope that it's an unveiling or a new way of seeing things. But really, our piece of it is to start seeing the world the way that God would. And that example is here in Daniel. And so we should approach every day with this knowledge that the only one who gives and takes away power is God. Ultimately, everything else is temporary and will ultimately pass away, right? And another point to the end times, I remember growing up with that being said all the time, are we living in the end times? Or surely because of this news headline, we are living in the end times. Mm -hmm. For the earliest Christians, they would have agreed. (laughs) We are living in the end times. And we know that because Jesus resurrected. The thing that God promised to do at the end of all time has already happened. And so in Acts 2, when Peter quotes Joel 2, and he says, your young men will dream dreams, your old men will see visions. I might've switched those around. Yeah, yeah. He's saying, yeah, we're living in the latter days right now. These are the end times. Mm. That doesn't mean that history is going to come to an end. That doesn't mean that the cosmos have crumbled into nothingness (laughs) or that we have a seven-year tribulation period right now. Those are some interpretive options of which there are others. But what it does mean is that the God who has promised all of these things because of who God is and because of who God's people are has already been answering and been faithful to those promises. And I think that's what was so powerful about passages like this and why it was so helpful for Jesus to be able to use passages like this to explain his identity, both to his followers and to those he was protesting against. I think that it gives us some hope. Like you said, the ultimate goal of this type of literature is to bring about hope. And I think it does give amount of hope for us because I think that we all have seen how men The rule of man is not something that can be depended upon and relied upon to change the world. The ultimate goal is to only see the kingdom of God reign on earth. And that way cares about people, raises up the least of these, advocates for those who cannot advocate for themselves. And so that is our hope that we would be a part of the people of God who are able to see the kingdom of God ultimately reign. So if that's true, like if we have accepted that, you know, even just staying within Daniel, like, yes, Jesus will come, uses this as the language for ultimately what gets him killed and he is the ultimate example. But how should this change the way that we approach our day to day now? It is hope. It's this, verse 14, he was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worship him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. This promise we get in chapter 2, promise here in chapter 7. We see promises like it later on in the vision where he reiterates the kingdom is going to come to the holy people of the Most High. And so back then it was confidence for those who chose to stay loyal to God in the midst of suffering and oppression and persecution that God saw them, God was going to intervene, and he was going to raise them up just like he raised Daniel out of the pit and gave him a seat of authority in the Persian kingdom. He's going to give them a seed of authority in the kingdom of God. And I think that's the promise for us. And again, we talk about like, how does this all come about? You know, there's a sense in which the kingdom of God has come in which I believe that God's doing works of restoration in us and restoring us to that image he wants us to have where we've been given authority to represent him. And so you talk about what it looks like to apply this. I think we need to fill that vocation God gave us originally in Genesis 1 to Mm. be his image bearers, to recognize the dignity and the royal value of every single person. But what gets missed is the 
responsibility of an image bearer is to represent him. And this is what we're doing here on earth. If Jesus is reigning in heaven right now, if he's seated next to the Father, then as partners, as members of that kingdom who've been resurrected ourselves and have received that kingdom, then we represent him. We take the hits. We go through the suffering. We speak on behalf of those who don't have power. This is what it looks like to follow Jesus because this is the way the king got his throne. The only thing I would add there is much of the Bible was either written at times yeah. or was edited together and reflected upon at times when it felt like God was really far away mm, yeah. and trying to understand why that is. Apocalyptic literature is no exception. In fact, it's probably the rule that it's really hard to understand this type of literature if you're not among the oppressed. Yeah. yeah. 2020 might be the year that allows us to really understand yeah. some of the heart of these texts. And I think one of the applications is to sit with that yeah. because we're not alone in feeling that oppression. In fact, for those of us who come from privilege, we are entering into oppression that others of our brothers and sisters and siblings have been participating with already for centuries, for decades. That's part of their identity. And so I think that's part of it. They're serving a God that gives them hope and that gives them hope that God will save. To qualify that is to possibly be siding with the oppressor, right? And I think what you said earlier about the Sanhedrin, the high priest, during Jesus's trial, the audacious statement that Jesus will one day be seen coming on the clouds of heaven and enthroned in sharing the throne of God and flipping over who's actually on trial for yeah. what, I think is a powerful statement. It seems like American Christians, of which I am one, a white male American Christian, we've co-opted the story of Israel too often for our own. We are more like the Babylonians than we are like the Israelites. We're more like the Persians and the Greeks than we are the people of Judah. We've co-opted that story and we've used it in this weird way where sometimes we have the power, but we perceive ourselves as the oppressor. And then it allows us to perpetuate cycles of violence and oppression and hurt towards others. We're blind towards the hurt of others. And so that is the value of this apocalypse moment is it might reveal in our hearts when we experience this hurt, oh my gosh, this is what your whole life has been like. This is what centuries of your people's experience in America has been like. You know, I should have known better. We should have known better. And hopefully we're learning lessons. You know, for a time where you look around, look at the news, you look at the world around us, we look at our churches, we look at our schools, we look at our climate. It's really easy right now to feel like God is really far away. And you said it, it seems like this is the perfect time to lean into some of this apocalyptic literature. And it does allow us to see God in a way that, yeah, you know what? It does feel like he's far away, but ultimately he has power. He gives and takes away power. And that should give us hope. That should give us hope that no matter what is going on around us and what the world is focusing on, that's the lens that we should view our reality in. Amen. Come Lord Jesus. Right? <laughs> that's how our apocalypse in the New Testament ends. That's, man, that's good. Come Lord Jesus. Thanks for joining us today for the Journey Through Daniel podcast. If this is your first time, so glad that you checked us out. To check out even more resources, children and family resources, and ebooks for all ages, visit our journey page at willowjourney.org. And follow us for updates at Willow Creek NS on Instagram. If you have questions or would like to learn more about the ministries of Willow Creek Community Church, check us out at willowcreek.org. We'll see you next time.